Please note, this episode references domestic abuse and mental health issues. Please see show notes for helpful links if you have been affected by any of the issues referenced. Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Lovely job, Well, I feel like this is like just a smashing way to end a week because we are recording on a Friday and I am speaking to Brianna Pegado. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I feel like I know you, Brianna, but we've never actually met. We just keep popping up on the old Zoom yeah, chats. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. I feel like, yeah, because we were on that panel together, what, maybe a couple months ago, maybe a few weeks ago. Who knows what time is anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, like the first time... I was at an event and you were hosting. You did just like a lovely exercise with it was with us, and um, it just st- stuck in my head. And I just thought you delivered it so beautifully. And like I was saying before we started recording, like you are one of the most eloquent speakers. That, like honestly, I can't gush about you enough. But um, you did a lovely exercise, like a values yes. wheel with us, and I just loved it. It just that just that moment to take stock of what is important is that something that you do often with yourself like take stock of like what's important with me what am I passionate about what am I going to lead with whatever I'm doing whether it's in my personal life or my job or is that something that's important to you 100% and it's a funny one you ask because you know values are so core to what I do and it's something that I think about and is at the front of my mind but then also just always sits in the back of my mind and What it makes me think about is, you know, my degree was in sustainable development and it was funny because I came to Edinburgh and wanted to study something to do with the environment, but there was nothing I could study that didn't end up with me being in a lab with a lab coat doing something very hard science. And I was like, I loved science in school, but I was like, that's just not me. Um, And basically the second year I was at uni the university introduced a new degree program called sustainable development that was all about looking at the planet and the environmental crisis from a social political and economic standpoint in the school of social and political science and it was humanities based and I was studying international relations and I was like oh golden ticket yes Um, and I was on a cohort there were four of us and only three of us ended up finishing Um, But we were in the first cohort of people to do that in the University of Edinburgh's history. And that was really cool. But I'm sharing the story not to brag about it, but to say that that whole the whole values of like, you know, the planet, our relationship to it, but just being, you know, kind and compassionate and understanding how our world could be a bit more fair and kinder um, has always been at the forefront of how I see the world. And I think that when it comes to values, like I love astrology, I love healing stuff. I'm one of those really annoying millennials that uh, buys <laughs> crystals and does b- ritual baths and all that stuff. But, you know, I think it's because, yeah, I'm often in spaces with other people that I'm either teaching or sharing knowledge because of the jobs I've had and the work I've done. So that values compass exercise you're talking about, yeah, I've done it a lot. I've run it with a lot of people over the last year. And it's the first time I've 
started to run it consistently as something I kind of offer as a workshop Mm. and um, I learned about it maybe like six years ago and used to deliver it for a short time with a consultant that introduced me to it but I think that, you know, I'm constantly thinking about my values. I can be an overthinker, but I don't do that exercise enough. But I know that no matter what I do, you know, my values are there. I've got a really low tolerance for injustice. We were talking about that a bit before we recorded. Um, I, I There are a lot of values that, you know, are really important to me. And I think, like, the only way I can describe it is when something goes up against my values, it physically pains me. Like, it physically doesn't feel right. I feel icky. I feel gross. I feel like, ugh, there's something that's not quite right here. And I think where I come into contact a lot with that feeling is in my working life. I think when it comes to pals and family, that's a bit something you can have more control over or you choose sometimes, maybe not your family so much, but you can choose your family. But yeah, I think in the working world where I'm spending my t- a lot of my time and energy, um, I am constantly asking myself, does this align with my values? And thankfully, you know, I've been in the third sector worked with a lot of social entrepreneurs. I've been a social entrepreneur myself. So those conversations about values are sometimes at the front of what we do. So I'm really grateful for that. But definitely it's something that is always there. I love that. And I think it's important actually rather to look at yourself than going, you know, oh, I'm I'm an imposter in this situation or am I I good enough or am I going to do a good enough job? Like it's actually more important to think like what's important to me? What do I value? What can I bring to the plate wherever I'm working whoever I'm working with and it's almost like your kind of personal brand like I feel like that even with the podcast like I'm constantly going back to what do I want this to be so that I'm always on my mission that I'm not straying for whatever reason from what I set out to do with this podcast I just I just loved it I think it's amazing I've, I've got it in my notebook and I've looked at it several times so thank you well thank you I'm so happy that you know that was a good exercise for you and you still have it that makes me feel great and that just kind of sparked my interest in you, and I've, I've been doing a bit of a, a bit of a deep dive in the internet about you, Brianna. But I think it's, it's definitely more important to get get the truth from the actual person. So that's why I was like, I need to get Brianna on the podcast because I just want to find out all about you. So I'm going to take you back a wee bit to growing up. Were there particular people in your life, or particular people just in the media and your world that inspired you as a young person? Wow, what a great question! Well, I grew up in the states, as I'm sure you can tell from my very odd accent, because I've been in Scotland for ten years. And you know, some people are like, "Oh, you've got a bit of a lilt," and then I go home, and they're like, "Where are you from?" <laughs> I'm like, "From around the freaking corner," and they're like no you're not you just sound funny and I'm like I was born here (laughs) and they're like no you weren't and I was like okay fine like I'm not going to argue with you so we'll just leave it (laughs) but yeah so I grew up in the states and I'll have to so two examples come to mind really quickly the first is I went to Montessori school and I only went to Montessori school from the age of two to four now it was nursery and preschool I don't know what the equivalent is here but yeah two to four and the Montessori education was set up by Maria Montessori and she was I don't know if she was a child psychologist or what she was but she set up this whole school system and the whole notion of it is you find your own path you find your own way and you're free to explore it's about curiosity and learning but not like conventionally and I know it was nursery and I know I was young but I have a very vivid you know um, memory of my shoelace coming undone and I went to my teacher and we called them both by their first names which was also like <gasps> scandalous how do you call 
which is by your first name. <laughs> Ernestine and Claudine were their names. And I think I went up to Ernestine and I was like, Ernestine, Ernestine, my shoelace has come untied. And she was like, yeah, okay. Like in a nice way, but she was like, okay. And I was like, can you please tie it for me? Because I mean, I was two. How on earth did I know how to tie it? <laughs> and she was like, well, Brianna, uh, here's a little diagram. And, you know, you can you can explore it yourself. You can figure it out. And I just kind of looked at her dumbfounded, like, what? <laughs> like, what? Like, you're supposed to fix this for me. <laughs> what do you mean? And I met my best friend. I, I say this. I'm not sure if this is exactly how we met. But I met my best and oldest friend that day because she came up and tied my shoe. She was a year older. So a three-year-old could manage it. And, yeah, that whole notion that there's no right way of doing things and you have to find your own path. And we're not going to tell you, you know, and I think so much of my spirit, you know, entrepreneurial, really not liking authority, actually not taking no for an answer sometimes, I really think comes down to that experience. And the second thing I'll think of is um, I went to another school and uh, I mean, I don't even know if this was legal, but, you know, it was the the time. I mean, it was the early 90s. So I'm surprised they got away with it. But I had the science teacher called Mrs. Jones and she was obsessed with them. Um, Oh, Stevie Wonder. She loved Stevie Wonder. She would play him all the time. And then she had a, she was a science teacher and she had a classroom full of animals. Like I'm talking boa constrictor snakes, pigeons, rats, chinchillas. Like it was like a huge classroom, but lined with all these cages of like different animals. And then in the corner of the room, she'd built this like makeshift thing, like floor to ceiling, like makeshift little hut. And it was called the Peaceable Kingdom. And all these animals that were not supposed to coexist together, like, I don't know, frogs and rats or all these animals that were meant to eat each other, lived in harmony. Oh <laughs> what? I mean, I'm telling you this, it sounds wild, but like this was it. And so she was always teaching us life, life lessons. She'd t- tell us things like the most important thing to know in life is to forgive and let go. I mean, I was five. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> okay, Mrs. Jones. Okay, Mrs. Jones. She was extraordinary and she used to take, I mean, again, sorry any for anyone that's easily squeamish or nauseous. She used to take the snake pee when it hardened and because of what their diet, it had so much calcium in it, it would turn into chalk. So she would use it as chalk and she'd use other things to like, you know, clean off the chalkboard. And she was very, you know, sustainable ahead of her time. She'd take scraps from the cafeteria from people's lunches and feed them to the animals. And she was just an extraordinary woman. And I don't, I think, you know, at the time I wasn't sitting there like goggly eyed thinking, wow, this is the most inspirational thing ever. But I know looking back that those two experiences were really central to how I see people and how I interact with other people and how I interact with the world, really. Oh, my word. If you could see my actual face, like, Brianna, you better be writing a book (laughs) for sure. I mean, we all have the kind of wacky or like, you know, standout teacher, but that tops it. Like, I've never heard anything like it. Mrs. Jones sounds amazing. She was. And I think she's still about. But yeah, she really was. And it was wild. And I when I told people after that, they were like, your science teacher had, had what and did what? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing about like, you know, being an educator. It's really important, like, you know, talking about shaping young minds and but they have the ability to really impact your life. And, you know, and you're saying like you have vivid memories from a young age, like you know, from two years old, given that freedom and, and understanding the world slightly differently and seeing something that's out of the ordinary, that can stay with you. And it's, I just think it's, as 
anyone who is in a position of educating of teaching of passing on their knowledge or their understanding of the world like it's such a gift and like people like mrs jones like they they stay with you they they can really shape who you go on to become 100 percent. and I, I come from a family of teachers so my grandmother was a seventh grade an english teacher my uncle is still a teacher and he teaches children with special needs my grandmother's sister my great aunts recently retired but that side of the family I come from a family of a lot of teachers but I also come from a family of incredibly creative people as well so that's that's really inspired and shaped me in my life as well I think you know I was always told uh you know it's a hobby you know my mom was trained as a ballerina and danced ballet throughout school through university and then for a bit after it but kind of was told you know you need to get a job um and not not try and pursue this especially as a black woman in the states at the time and my grandpa you know he's been retired my whole life because I came around after he retired he was he worked for the government but you know he in his free time acted um he did voiceovers he did community theater and he played tennis and he actually is still ranked as an amateur tennis player in the like 60s 70s and 80s age bracket because he was really (laughs) and my dad my dad um never finished uni um but was very into drawing and sketching and architecture and loved loved design I mean he also loved cars but you know I grew up in a family that is very creative I don't think any of them maybe saw themselves as that creative or saw it as something that they could do for a living but I also was very much you know inspired by that without knowing that's amazing that's the thing like people are almost like undesignated like mentors in your life and whether you realize it or whether they realize it like they are making an impact how they live their life and what you know what they're passionate about when you were a you know a youngster like what were you passionate about what were you doing on a regular basis whether it was for a hobby or something that you saw yourself doing in the future I danced I mean I went to well, I danced ballet, tap, hip hop, jazz, and modern yes. dance. I played, I played soccer, played football. I painted. I think for ages, because like you know, you know how um, impressionable young people are. It's like we had these Disney Channel original movies that didn't come out over here, but they were they weren't low budget. They're actually quite high budget films about. This is probably like early two thousands now about. Um, inspirational young people they were so diverse it was always young people that had a passion whether or not it was like rollerblading or roller derby or basketball or surfing and it was just so amazing and I remember um this channel aired the Harriet the Spy film um with Rosie O'Donnell that came out I guess in the early 2000s and like for a couple of months I was like I'm gonna be a spy yes I, I like I I found things around the house like talcum powder, my mom's blush brush, found some binoculars. <laughs> I like, maybe got like um you know like a, a for Christmas or something like a black light. So like I was dusting for fingerprints and like running around my neighborhood. Yes, love this. Trying to find you know the secrets. So like I'd go through phases. There was another um one of those films about a writer and it had a paper route. And the one thing I will say that's been consistently part of my artistic practice or creative practice. I know that that term can be such a jargony kind of obnoxious term but yeah what's been part of my creativity forever is I've always been a writer so I've always written poetry um when I was 11 talk about what inspired me I because of a film again (laughs) Pool of Rock came out and Freaky Friday with Lindsay Lohan had come out and my best pals and I 
we're at a Christian school, which is such a like cliche classic thing, you know, rebelling against the, the school. And then um, we decided we wanted to be in a rock band and none of us had instruments. I like, I asked for a guitar for Christmas. <laughs> no idea what I was doing. No one else had any instruments. I think one of my pals, Natalie, her dad had his old guitar and we decided we were going to set up a rock band. But like from that Christmas break until we got back in January, we had started writing songs and playing in a band. And like, I wrote a lot of the lyrics and some of the music and we played in that band together for like five, six years. One of the bandmates moved and she moved to Kampala in Uganda because her parents worked in for the world bank. A lot of our parents worked in us government and things like that. I mean, very classic growing up in Washington DC, but um, yeah, we played in a punk rock band, all girl punk rock band, massive revolving door of drummers, but that's just how drummers are. <laughs> and I they won it. some Battle of the Bands. And like that was, I mean, for a while, if I'm honest, Lisa, like I did think that, you know, we could make it and I would become a musician. Like I was like, this is this is what I'm going to do. Well, you were committed. I mean, you were at it for years. Like, I love it. But, I mean, by the time you were like a teenager, you'd been a dancer, you'd been a spy, you'd been in a rock band. I mean, like you've, you've achieved so much in your <laughs> such early career and you hadn't even like left school yet. Brianna, I'm so impressed. <laughs> and yeah, and I love cooking too, but the first two were not, not great. That's something I'll always do as well. I think like to answer you, like anything that allows me to express myself that feels good, that tastes good, that's what I was all about, just trying things out and having fun. Love it. Absolutely love it. And earlier on, you'd mentioned about moving to Edinburgh to study. That's a massive deal to move across the world to study elsewhere and not know a place. But, you know, was that something that was quite daunting to you or do have you just always been quite a, what I would say, a brave person? Like that just seems absolutely massive to me. Thank you. Well, I think it was massive. And I think to kind of carry on from the last question you asked, I've always been a person that's really cared about the world. I've talked about the planet, but I've always cared about um, geography, world affairs, like what's happening in politics, all these things. And that's definitely been influenced by my parents because my mom worked for the U.S. government for the Department of Commerce. She was she did a lot of international travel and, and diplomacy and all those things. My dad originally worked in the oil industry. When I was growing up, he worked from home. So I really experienced this like real flip in gender roles where my dad was the primary caretaker and took me to school, made my lunch. Um, but my dad would sit because he lived, he lived in the UK for four years between 1982, I think, or 1984 and 1988. So he really was influenced by British culture. Like his heyday was in London in the 80s. God, and yeah. so I used to go out watching like, well, the BBC World Service were listening to it and BBC News and Top Gear and all these things that were very random for like a little girl in Washington, D.C. to even know about, <laughs> right? Like there's this really romantic notion that my dad built in my head about the UK and London in particular. So with that in mind, because he was constantly talking about his years in London and how much he loved it and all this stuff, I think that was a seed that was planted really early, mm. Grand- Edinburgh is not London but that was there and my brother and sister they're half siblings they grew up in Angola which is where my dad's side of the family's from and were born there but they live with my dad in London in the 80s and they lived in Lisbon for a bit with their mom and then when my dad married my mom second marriage they moved to the states so I guess like short answer to it is it wasn't that abnormal for me to I guess study outside of the US because my family had kind of grown up in other places but I'm I will say my schoolmates 
We had college counselors that helped us with our applications. They thought I was nuts. They were just like, why would you study anywhere outside of the US? And it's that American, you know, arrogance too of like, we have the best universities in the world and best colleges. Why would you bother looking anywhere else? And also that sense of like, you know, I was told, I mean, I've, I've been told a lot in my life that I'm, I won't be able to do something, but I was told by some people, oh, you'll never get in. You know, why are you bothering? Uh, what's Edinburgh? You know, people just like making stupid jokes about stuff. And I was determined. I mean, anytime you tell me I can't do something, that's fuel to my fires. So I was like, you just, you all just watch me freaking apply and go to Edinburgh and I'd visited for about half a day I knew very little about Scotland I mean obviously I'd done some research and like I found out through the grapevine and the family that my uncle in the 70s had actually gone to Dundee to study and so my dad I guess had sent him and put him through uni at Dundee but yeah it was massive and I think the only thing that I had on my side that made me confident was that look I was like my mom's always said this she says you know I could drop Brianna on Mars and I know she'd be fine she'd figure it out my mom always had that attitude and I had the privilege of you know traveling with my parents a lot when I was younger so I am really comfortable in in discomfort I feel a sense of safety and calm being in places I don't know and I think the, the last thing I'll say that kind of is the reason why I feel that way is that, you know, I grew up in a household where I didn't understand some of the language that was being spoken. So I never learned Portuguese and Portuguese is the language spoken in Angola. It's a long story about why I blame it on nuns at my Portuguese school were very scary. But um, I grew up in a house where I didn't always understand the language. So even that sense of like something being foreign or me not fully understanding it or a culture, that oddly gives me a real sense of safety. No, I totally understand that. Like that, that makes sense. Yeah, but gosh, that to think that that was just your reality, but you were absolutely fine with it. That was just how life was. Yeah, because I didn't really question it. Because I yeah. didn't really know what it was like in anyone else's house. You know what I mean? I was just like, oh yeah, this this is what's happening in my house. Okay. Well, that's almost like a gift because it, it did make you someone who was comfortable with the unknown, and you know, it gave you the courage or what, whatever you want to call it to to move across the world to study to follow what you're passionate about. And for anyone that was saying to you, oh, you're not going to get in, you're not going to be able to do that. That you know that that wasn't just wasn't an issue you were going to do it you were just going to do it anyway yeah the, the, the literally the fastest way to light a fire under my bum is to tell me I can't do something <laughs> yes <laughs> I need to take a leaf out of your book the minute somebody tells me I can't do something I'm like okay thank you no problem so, sorry for wasting your time thanks very much I, I love that that's something like that speaking to people on the podcast like I'm learning lessons all the time and that's something that I need, definitely need to take a leaf out of your book there but um you didn't just come to like Edinburgh and do your studies Brianna I mean I've been reading up about you and you can correct me if I'm wrong but I believe that while you were at Edinburgh University you became the university's student association's first ever black woman president in its 130 year history yeah that was a doozy (laughs) I mean you don't just come Edinburgh to study you go all in yeah I'm a kind of go big or go home person as well (laughs) Uh, just a bit amazing thank you and I didn't set out to do that I think you know there's so much that's happened in Edinburgh and in Scotland and across the UK in the last 10 years as we know and 2010 obviously the fee regime changed the rest of UK students had to pay fees to go to uni in in Scotland for the first time Mm. there were massive protests anti-cuts movement I didn't understand all of it because I came from a country where the idea of free education is just not even possible you know Mm. like and I 
totally respect and appreciate what's here. You know, that education, higher education and further education is a right, not a privilege. Mm. I came in the flurry of all of this and I was just like, what's going on? And also alongside that, 2010 was the year that the post-study work visa was announced to be removed. So there used to be, I mean, it's back now after 10 years of campaigning, but Mm. it used to be that international students had a two-year visa after they graduated to settle and find a job. And because of the Home Office's hostile environment and change in policies, that was under threat, was taken away. Uh, Census started coming in, so international students had to register their um, presence at university. So it was becoming, politically, it was a really intense moment for everyone in higher education. And um, I remember going to like a student council meeting because I was curious, you know, I've, I've always been active, I've always cared about these sorts of things. And um, I was very involved in my community at school and I, I just love that kind of stuff. I do love politics and campaigning, even though I think like it's an awful cesspool of a lot of really um, selfish people. But the actual kind of spirit of supporting your community, getting involved is something that's always been core to who I am and what I learned from my schooling and my family. But anyway, I walk into this meeting and the president at the time was a woman called Liz Rawlings. And I think she was one of the first women to be president of the Students Association. And she, I guess she saw something in me. She came up to me after. She's like, Brianna, I think, you know, you're going to be sitting in this chair in four years time. And I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, I just got here like off the plane. I don't even know what's going on. (laughs) And so she planted that seed. But then I was getting really angry about how international students are being treated. So I started to get more involved in those campaigns that year, my first year at uni, the Students Association was looking at setting up the first Black History Month. And I was just like, wait a minute, how is it that Black History Month's been going on for ages and this university has never celebrated it ever? I was just like, what's going on? So I just kind of got stuck in and um, I helped set up that first Black History Month. But I do have to say like, most of I mean, the names I've been called and the things that I've been through, I was called the populist president because I didn't align with any political party and Edinburgh University Students Association has a history of like training prime ministers Gordon Brown was the student well I think he was the rector of the university but I think he was also the Students Association president at one point you know a lot of people see this as a like stepping stone for career politicians in Britain and in Scotland and across the the UK and the four nations and I just like was like what like you know I just wasn't I wasn't really fussed about that but I was really annoyed about how I was being represented as a student to the wider worlds and there was so much controversy in the students association I mean a positive thing is the students association band blurred lines the song by Robin Thicke because it was a, to stand up against really sexist and misogynistic lyrics but I just felt things were really out of hand at the time and I have to say that that year being president of the students association it was a fully paid for role for a year and I really understood that like it was a union. We were representing students' interest to the university. We were standing up for things. You know, I had to interact with MPs and MSPs and city councillors. And I had to interact with the National Union of Students across Scotland and the UK. I was meeting other student leaders. I was responsible for a charity that had 10 million pound turnover. You know, it was like trial by fire. And you go into this thing. I mean, it was two years of campaigning and working my bum off to get into the role, but 
I did it for certain reasons because I wanted to represent students like me and I felt people were being underrepresented or things were too political. But I learned very quickly why things were political and the need for a students association and the real power of these institutions that just chug along in the background. Loads of people go to uni and don't even think about their students union. They just think it's a place to get a drink or get a pint, you know? And so it was such an education, but it was also really difficult. I was singled out as the American the student press were nasty. It was like a little, um, you know, dry run of what having an actual political career would look and feel like. Gosh, it sounds, I mean, it's so intense, like so much responsibility. Like you're saying it, you definitely weren't doing it for the badge of honour, for sure. Like the amount of responsibility you would have had. In terms of lessons learned, what is like the kind of standout thing for you that you took away from your time as president? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we got a year out. So we weren't studying on top of it. But it was definitely happening, you know, during our studies in a lot of ways. I think the, you know, I don't know, lots of student union presidents fell out with their vice presidents throughout their time. You know, I had my own like experience of that. But I think what I really learned was I learned a lot about leadership and what my values were coming back to values. Like we had a lot of really controversial situations about boycotting Israel, like lots of very international political things. And I think I really learned who my true friends are, but I think I really learned more about the value of unions and and what role they play. But I just learned about myself and where I would put, uh, put my foot down and where I wouldn't and how to negotiate very difficult situations. I'm not saying I did it well. Um, But it was really like a massive education, one that I think I wouldn't get any other way. So it was really about, yeah, my values and how to stick to them in really difficult situations. Mm, Coming back to that values compass again, it's important. Totally. So leaving university armed with your qualification, what were you thinking you were going to be doing next? To be honest with you, Lisa, I had no clue. And it was funny. So like my year as student president was the year after I graduated. So it was after my fourth year. And I had a year paid doing that. And in that year, I um, I felt really creatively stifled. I'd felt creatively stifled throughout my degree. You know, I'd stopped dancing. I wasn't in a rock band anymore. I didn't have access to paint supplies or music instruments like I did at school. Mm. I really felt like there was a part of me like that had died or dried up inside of me. And I was like, wow, like this is awful, you know, and I wasn't being as active as I used to because you know, I used to play a lot of sport because I kind of had to. That was just part of being at school. And coming here, yeah, okay, I was going out and partying. <laughs> I was around a lot of people that were really entrepreneurial, like running club nights, um, doing photography on the side. But I just noticed I was around so many creative people. And um, the year I was president, just because, you know, I didn't already have enough to do, um, I went to the principal of the uni and I said to him you know how would you feel about setting up a student fringe festival like a mini fringe and he was the chair of the fringe society so he was like oh yes that sounds like a very good idea sorry terrible and you know impersonation <laughs> of Sir Timothy O'Shea but you know he did say oh that's a great idea you know how much money do you need and I just I asked him for 10 grand I had no idea what I was doing Lisa I was like 10 grand and he was like sure take it <laughs> and um I went to students, the student officers at QMU, at Napier, at Harriet Watt, and then Edinburgh College. And I was like, let's do a citywide student arts festival. Set that up. No idea what we were doing. We made an open call. Anyone could apply. It was all volunteer run. We got some venues on board. We could pay for the venues with the funding, a ticketing system. We put together a program. You know, we decided it would take place over a week in February because we figured 
people would be coming back from you know winter holidays if they were art students they have some work to show we wanted it yeah. completely multidisciplinary visual art performing arts dance a stall market everything and by the time I finished my year as president you know I was I was doing a lot of work with entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs I've been part of a big movement of students and staff that were asking some really big questions about what's the future of education what what's the university for especially that fees have changed like this you know what what are we doing now mm. um and really having some big questions about what the future of education could look like, but what, you know, that overlap with social entrepreneurship, like what kind of society do we want to live in? And I guess, you know, I was sitting in the enterprise um, office at the career service and I was like, yeah, I've set up this arts festival. And the, the advisor there was like, well, why don't you do that full time? And I was like, huh? She's like, yeah, why don't you just set that up as a company and do that full time? And I was like, I can do that. And she's like, yeah, why not? You've already done it. Just get some more money and, and do it get a visa to stay here as a graduate entrepreneur. So I kind of just fell into running the arts festival. It didn't pay me. So I was freelancing, working part-time, working three jobs, you know, on top of it. I lived with my partner at the time. He owned his flat, thank God, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to afford anything. And I started... You know, it's this weird thing of it. I know we were on a panel together about this. My very first freelance contract was with the organization I've just moved on from, Creative Edinburgh. And I knew the director at the time. I'd met her through the work of, of the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival. And I'm, I'm good at networking and meeting people. And uh, I asked her if she needed any help with anything. She's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my um, other staff person's just left. I'm about to put on this huge award ceremony what about helping me freelance? And Lisa, I had no idea how much to charge. I was just Googling things. I was like, a uh, hundred pounds a day. And she was like, yeah, sure. And um, that was how my freelance career started. I'd worked for the organization I'm now chair of the board of, which is YWCA Scotland, the Young Women's Movement, which is a 150 year old women's organization there are branches all over the world there's the world ywca and it's like the ymca for women and um i'd done some work for them as um their engagement officer but honestly i just made it work and i ended up setting up this arts festival and kind of catapulting myself into the creative industries in scotland without really planning on doing it the, the phrase like go-getter it's coming up in my head, which sounds a bit naff, but I just feel like you're not someone, like obviously I don't know you, Brianna, but you, you don't sound to me like someone who procrastinates on ideas. Like you're very much just like, yeah, I'll give that a go. And I think you're selling yourself short. You're saying, oh, I just fell into it. And, you know, you've obviously got an amazing skill set. You've got an amazing ability to connect with people. You're educated, you're hardworking, like everything you've put in so far you know it's all you you know you did it on your own terms off your own back but it just sounds to me like you just you don't sit around waiting too much you don't procrastinate you just go for oh, it that's so kind of you I think I think yeah I think in a lot of ways that is true I mean I am a recovering perfectionist and I will tell you I am a master procrastinator <laughs> When it comes to work or studies or whatever, or things I don't want to do, which sounds a bit also ridiculous. But I do think, yeah, I am the kind of person that like is kind of happy to make mistakes and just get stuck in. And I guess some of that is just growing up in a family and in a city. I mean, I have to say, growing up in Washington, D.C. Um, is a very weird thing. You know, it's it's the political capital of the United States, the political capital of the world. 
in some ways, I think that's a bit obnoxious to say in this day and age, but you know, in some ways, and um, American culture is very entrepreneurial, go get it. But there's something really exhausting about that of like, you've always got to put your best foot forward. You've always got to be presentable. You've always got to speak well, represent yourself well. And that's not all of the US. That is very much political Washington, DC. But I think like fortunately or unfortunately, because I think there's like a knockoff on your mental health and wellness and all sorts. I was just raised in a way that like I had to be constantly ready to go, you know, and constantly ready to just get stuck in, present myself well, you know, that whole networking um, skill I have is because I was raised in the networking capital of the world, you know, Americans, you know, you, you meet someone in DC, and it's the subtext of that conversation is like, who are you? And what can you do for me? It's never just a like, hi, how are you? And genuinely, people want to know, you know, people are always wheeling and dealing and maneuvering and manipulating and trying to get, you know, their foot in the door. And I think that is embedded in my personality for better or worse. And so, yeah, I would agree with what you've said. You know, I do make things happen and I don't, you know, I don't like too much talk. I like action. And I think, yeah, because of that, I've just kind of been like, all right, like, let's just give this a go. See what happens. If it doesn't work, doesn't work. Great. We just move on. (laughs) It doesn't mean there isn't a lot of anxiety in there or risk taking. That's not fun. I mean, you and I both know being a freelancer in the arts and creative industries is the worst in some ways, you know, like having to cope with that uncertainty or being paid late or not knowing how something's going to work out. But I think the beauty of the creative sector and creative people is that resilience of really being open to exploring what might come, you know, and really open to the process and just seeing what happens, not being so outcomes based, but it is a weird tension in me, you know, this need to kind of perform and, and over, you know, overwork, you know, definitely is something I've been working on since I've been in Edinburgh. You know, the overwork is not healthy. Overachieving, not healthy. But yeah, it serves me in a lot of ways, too. <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm just thinking what what was really important, what you said there about, like, being okay with meeting those hurdles and, and almost like that idea of failure like it's okay to stumble it's okay to make mistakes that shouldn't put you off trying how else are you going to learn unless you try you know I think a lot of the time people are just put off with well I'm not an expert you know I, I heard this like stat about women applying for jobs like oh I don't tick every single box so I can't possibly apply and it's like well no what are you bringing to the table and what are you going to be able to learn on your journey you can't possibly know it all 100%. I remember reading that stat too, you know, women, unless they feel they meet 100% of the criteria won't go for a job, but men often will if they just meet 60% of it, you know, and yeah, as women, oh my gosh, we could talk about this for hours. I just think as women, so many things that we have taken on ourselves because of the society we live in, you know, is built, designed for men, has been for centuries. I think like, you know, there is a Yeah, there is this sense and maybe I don't know if I think about it on a day to day basis, but I think it is there in the back of my mind and soul and psyche, this sense that like, because I'm a young black woman, I have to be excellent, you know, because I'm going to be judged that much harder. And I think my family drilled that into me from a young age, and I really resisted it. I was like, no, 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 the world's more fair, you know, the world's not racist, blah, 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 blah. blah. But you know, I've learned as I've gone on in my career that yes, I am judged that much harder as a woman, as a young person, as a black woman um you know as someone that's like somewhat neurodivergent as well so 
I just think that like I've coped with that by like doing the best that I can at all in all scenarios at all times. But I've also taken so much time because burnout is real. I've lived through burnout. I experienced it in a massive way in 2017. And I think I'm probably still recovering from that. You know, things really hit the fan with the festival, with my relationship, with my living situation, with my health, you know, with my visa status. Um, And I think that there's so much to, and I, I really think the side hustling and like this hustle culture is really dangerous. I also think, you know, look at how much the wellness industry has grown, yoga, healthy eating, health and wellness, you know, it's like a multi-billion pound industry. And so much of that is a response to the fact that like, as humans right now, we're not well, we've got a mental health crisis. I think it's capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much about the way we live that it's just not healthy for us as human beings. But I do think that like, back to what you were just saying, that yeah, like, I have definitely made it work. And I've kind of made things work for me. And that failure, that kind of comfort with failing is not is not something we're all used to. You know, I think some societies and countries and cultures are better at it than others. Making mistakes is not, you know, seen as a positive thing. I think it is in the startup world. Mm. But even still, there's all this language of like, fail fast, fail fast, make mistakes fast so you can move on and figure out the next thing. No, like, how about fail slowly? Yeah, is moving that fast all the time? Like, I don't think so. Yeah, you almost need to let something breathe before you know whether you're doing it right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and that idea, like the idea of um, showing your failures, you know, and I'm just thinking, you know, you were mentioning mental health as well. It's that it's the same thing again. Like I think we're getting better, being more honest and open and sharing, and thank goodness. But you're right, like there there is still that stigma attached in so many ways of that idea of well, you're failing if you're you're not nailing it, you're not putting your best foot forward, you're not showing your best self that you're feed isn't curated and looking all sparkly and shiny and wonderful and that's just not life it really isn't it isn't and I think you know we're getting I mean there's so many cultures you know you look at the far east you look at indigenous cultures across the world that really understand trauma and really understand what trauma means you know and I think in western society and the global north and a really capitalist society I don't think that we make room for trauma And, you know, we've got so much from wars to the pandemic to family illness to death. There's so many things that, like, cause trauma, you know, traumatic work environments, whatever. And I think that with the mental ill health crisis, we're starting to understand trauma a bit better. Um, Mm -hmm. But I definitely think that, like, we're getting better about the stigma and all sorts of things, but we're not comfortable with it, you know? There's still something there that's stigmatized around. It's a weakness. And I... I think that's a very modern notion. You know, I don't think that back in the day or in cultures that allowed for more ease and calm and comfort and no need to rush and being productive all the time, you know, being human, it was allowed. Like inherently being a human is is what you're supposed to be doing. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, I think like we we were much better able to cope. And I think, you know, because of my own burnout in 2017, I mean, I've done all sorts of wild things, but like I've worked with shaman. I have, I've gone, I was, uh, I sound again, like such a, you know, privileged millennial, but I went to Bali. I went to Bali because I was on a flight that was canceled and I got a free return ticket to make up for this canceled flight. And it was Virgin Atlantic. And it was like, you can fly anywhere in the world out of uh, London Heathrow that we fly to. And I was like, all right then. Yes. (laughs) 
Where am I going? Yeah, and I took the return trip uh, to Hong Kong and there are really cheap flights, like Ryanair flights to Indonesia, to Bali. And um, I had just kind of survived a really not, well, really abusive relationship, to be completely honest. It was a domestic abuse relationship and an emotionally abusive one. And there's so much stigma around that. And we don't really understand, you know, what healthy relationships look like in our modern society either. But I was recovering because I was like, wow, this has been a doozy of a year. And like, I'm just going to chill and do some yoga and eat some food and not talk to anyone. And um, I went on this journey because I was really struggling with my gut health, you know, um, and that was all tied up in lots of trauma I'd experienced as a young person. But I just kind of went on this journey to understand that a bit more. And I guess another string to my bow is like, I've trained in some of the healing arts. And that's why I'm into astrology and tarot and body work and, you know, psychology, though I'm no psychotherapist or psychologist, but I've, I've been to counseling and I take that very seriously. And I know that so much of the way I am and what I do is because of like all of those past traumas and experiences. Um, You know, I live with complex PTSD as well. And I think like if we lived in a society that allowed for this more and didn't see it as like something that needed to be fixed, but as something that is just part of the human experience, I really think that we would be happier and healthier. And I do think in Britain, Scotland less so, but Edinburgh definitely, there's a real conservatism around talking about it. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in other countries too. It does. But I just, you know, we're we're really kind of repressing parts of ourselves that are just part of being human that are normal. And I think um, it just doesn't make for very happy, healthy people. Let me just say, like, thank you for sharing part of your experience, like, on the podcast, just here and now. Like, I just really appreciate your honesty and, and you being open. And I'm sure that you have been in the past on other platforms with other people. And I can only say that 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 will help massively for anyone that is going through something or has gone through something and doesn't feel that they can open up. No, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. And talking about influence other people, you know, we started talking at the beginning, talking about people that, you know, inspired you and influenced you growing up. Um, And I'm sure you've added to that list as you've gone through your life thus far. But you have become a mentor of others and and are inspiring others I mean I know that you are a mentor for the collective because Hannah has been on the podcast as well from the Delicate Rebellion was that something that you were approached to do you know have you had other opportunities to mentor yeah 100% and um, I think that comes from my mom because she always instilled in me from a very young age that Mentoring is why she has gotten to the places she has in her career. And I was always very involved in community service and other things. But like, I, I think, you know, especially as a black woman as well, like you you mentor other people because you want other people to make it through and to do well for themselves. And um, from my teachers, from, you know, babysitting, camp counseling, all of the other voluntary stuff I did, like that was always a big part of my life and something that I've never thought twice about it's something that I've just been told is a good thing to do and I was always supported with and mentored myself I can't count the people that have mentored me but my mom always talked about how important that was and um I definitely so when I was at uni um I was a student ambassador so I was I would speak to a lot of prospective students take them on tours it was my part-time job and also just I got involved in lots of clubs and societies I'm laughing because I was uh, the president and vice president two separate years of the North American Society (laughs) 
<laughs> so ridiculous. But we, you know? we did, um, We it was brand new. I joined in my first year and the year of the election, because I guess what, 2012, um, 2011, 2012, we registered a lot of students to vote. And um, that was just a fun, you know, society group of people I hung out with. I tried to avoid Americans when I first got here, but then I couldn't, you know, it was impossible. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, I think like throughout the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival, throughout all the work that I've done, I have mentored people. Creative Edinburgh has a mentoring program and that's why I really aligned with the values of the organization because it it has a mentoring program. YWCA Scotland, the Young Women's Movement is a movement about mentoring young women and supporting one another. So when it came to Hannah, I met her probably in 2014 or 15. She just launched her first magazine, She is Fierce. And it was part of the Scottish mental health festival and she somehow had (laughs) negotiated her way into having the launch event at the castle like I mean in one of the like big rooms like I don't remember which room it was but it was like one of those stately like dining rooms I mean I'm a formal title and I'd never been into that bit of the castle before and I was like how on earth did she pull this off and that we met at the event I think I just got invited because uh maybe she knew about the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival and I think she'd applied for one of our voluntary roles to be a content producer for it and uh, we just hit it off and Hannah and I have been friends ever since and so when she set up the collective I think yeah I think she was looking for mentors and she asked me to be a mentor and I've been a mentor now for three years and um I just I think I really respect the community that she's built and the thing I have to say about my experience throughout the arts and creative industries I've had the absolute joy and pleasure to be around some of the most community focused loving giving entrepreneurial folk that really build and support communities I used to volunteer for creative mornings Edinburgh I was a speaker coach I'm just like so amazed by particularly in Edinburgh but particularly in Scotland this whole sense of com- of collaboration over competition and how yeah. we support one another and that like mentoring relationship is strong everywhere so definitely it's something that's been a big part of me but I've been so grateful to be in a country and in a city and in an industry or across industries where that's really valued. Well, I mean, I'm, I just think we're very lucky that you came here, Brianna, <laughs> and you've stayed so long and you've just made such an amazing impact. And, you know, I, I feel the same in terms of like creating the brawn and the brave. It was very much like to celebrate people and their passions and the people that I knew and had worked with. But then it, it quite quickly grew to me speaking to people and reaching out to people that I didn't know anything about, but just what they were putting out into the world seemed, you know, for good and that they were, you know, their intentions were good and that they were doing something that they were passionate about. And I have, it, I've just been amazed at the support that I've had for the brawn and the brave and the fact that you're on doing this podcast right here now you know the fact that you've given up your time to do this it's just the resounding kind of message is that for the most part people are good and they want to help each other I think especially within the creative industries definitely definitely I think there's a lot of good stuff happening here and I think as well there's such a history I mean you look at the Scottish Enlightenment and the amount of things that were invented during that period modern economics, modern democracy. I mean, the US wouldn't exist without Scotland. SARS US, but it's the truth. I really believe that Scotland's going through and has for the last 10 years, a second enlightenment, which is like this movement of purpose-driven, ethical, sustainable, socially focused organizations and businesses. You know, we have the Impact Summit, we have the Social Enterprise Scotland, we have the Social Enterprise Code of 
conduct or voluntary code of conduct, the first of its kind in the world. One of the longest running, uh, you know, incubators, so like spaces that support social enterprises are is here in Edinburgh. Just this whole movement, I'm not saying it isn't happening anywhere else in the world, but what I'm saying is that here, the combination of collaboration over competition, the create how strong the creative industries are, this real move towards, you know, Edinburgh wants to be the data capital of Europe by 2030. You know, there's so much happening that's so special. That's why I haven't left. You know, I've just found this like sweet spot of all of these amazing things coming together to make our world a better place. And I don't think it's happening in the same way anywhere else. It's not even happening in the same way down south. Like you can't say this about London. You can't say this. I mean, gotta love our pals in Wales and Northern Ireland. They're doing great things too, but it's just not happening in the same way as it is in Scotland because of the ethos, the history, the people here and the values of this mighty wee place. So, you know, I have a real love for my adult home, adopted home. I've been here my entire adult life, <laughs> a mere 10 years, but still. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, there's something really special happening. Obviously, with everything that's going on at the moment, with the pandemic and everything else, I really believe that we're going to come out of this. I'm not going to use words like stronger or better, just different and more innovative and hopefully nicer and fairer. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I have my fingers crossed. Yeah, me too. I mean, I was thinking that earlier on, just when you were saying about that, you know, that slower pace, like giving yourself time. Like, you know, I would like to think that this year, if anything, we've gained that that kind of perspective to see what's what's important and what we should value. Going back to that kind of idea of values compass, you know, like it's not just like consume, consume, consume. Like, what can we give? I think I, ho- I hope that that sense of community prevails. Um, although, like you say, it very much lives here in Scotland already. I think. Um, if anything that's that's going to come out stronger and um, whether we whether we feel stronger or not yeah. <laughs> well, time will tell um we're, we're recording this in november it feels like we're we're nearly at the end of 2020 but i mean gosh who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks but um what are you looking forward to moving out of 2020 into 2021? I think I'm really looking forward to new beginnings. You know, I'm in a trans transitionary period in my career and I've spent, you know, over the last year or two, I've spent a lot of time cooking, wild swimming, love wild swimming, and doing yoga, even though not very consistently. And I think, you know, I've spent so much time just going with the flow. Like I've, you know, intended to do the things I've done, but I've not planned to do them. If you see what I mean, it's like I've been Mm. opportunities. I've just gone with it. But now I'm quite interested in taking some time to reflect and look at and make some choices, like choose what I want to do. And I think this extends to our country and what's going on. I know a lot of us are grieving and are getting through a really difficult period. And many of us are firefighting. You know, we're just dealing with the emergencies and the crises that are in front of us. But I do hope that we take this opportunity to take a step back where we can and reflect and think about the future world we want to live in and the future Scotland we want to live in. You know, I think that actually it's in times of crisis, pandemic, recession, that the new, not even new, but the ideas come because it might be some old ideas that we're going to repurpose, you know. And I think that now is the time to do it. I mean, without getting into Brexit and the indie ref and so many other things going on, We've had some quite pivotal moments in the last 10 years that have really determined what direction we're moving in. 
And I really think that this is another one of those moments. It doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel like it necessarily. Mm. But I really have faith and trust that, you know, we're going to come out of this and things will not be the same and they might not even be easy. I think things often get more difficult before they get easier. But I do hope that we take this opportunity to really think about what we've done over this last wee while. And what I've seen is people looking after each other, communities coming together. Like I don't really leave the 10 to 15 minute walking vicinity of my flat. You know, I know all my neighbors. I knew them when I moved, but I know all of them really well now even more. And just, you know, thinking about supporting local businesses, thinking about, you know, the impact I have on the planet and, and my world and being able to slow down and take the time to do it, I'm really grateful for. I, I also know how privileged I am to not be on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, and I support where I can. But I think, you know, this is this is actually an opportunity. It's scary. It's uncertain. It's it's awful. It's been awful. But I also think there's real opportunity for beauty and change and to see what comes. And I really have faith that if we have the right leadership and if people are willing to kind of wade through the muck of uncertainty that actually will come out of it on the other side, feeling really good about the choices we've made. Brianna, you're just, like I said before, you're just so eloquent and I really appreciate how open and honest and given you've been on this podcast, like, you know, anyone listening, I think will just be just in awe of everything that you've achieved and overcome this far. And it's not, I know it's not even the tip of the iceberg because I know you've got an array of awards and accolades and things that you've achieved this far that we've probably not even mentioned. But let me just say, like, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you've put into this episode alone. No, thank you so much, Lisa. And honestly, your podcast and all of the people you've interviewed and all of the stories you've told, you know, it's an absolute honor that I'm part of that. So I'm really grateful for that. And yeah, thank you so much for today. A total pleasure. Now, I didn't tell you about this, but I do a thing called the thingamabobs. And these are very random questions. I have a list of over 70 of them. And I like to just pick a few for each guest, just to put them on the spot and see what comes out. Let's do it. <laughs> cool. Let's do it indeed. Right, you were talking about you were uh, about movies earlier on. You were kind of influenced by certain movies as a as a young person. So, what is your go to movie if you need cheating up? Wow. Okay, I'm gonna. Okay, I have one. I don't know if it always is, but I am a big fan of Matilda. Yes. <laughs> so good choice. That's, that's a good one. That is a good one. Loving it. Um. Okay, you possess many talents we know this I'm still waiting in this rock band reforming by the way (laughs) but um do you have any hidden talents hidden talents yes but I'm trying to think (laughs) (laughs) if I haven't mentioned them hidden talents okay well I know how to pickle things and make kombucha (laughs) that's a talent really but I'll go with that I learned in lockdown. <laughs> oh, did you? Oh, no, come on. You're just showing off. Like, that's amazing. Yeah. It, I don't know if it will. I mean, I'm actually sitting here looking at a jar that's probably gone gone off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, most of the time, if I pay attention, I can do it. <laughs> well, we didn't say they had to be edible pickles. We just... <laughs> that That's a first. No one has said to me that they've learned how to pickle things on lockdown. So you win that. <laughs> um, 
Okay, I've got to do the, what's the best thing about Scotland? Oh, the best thing about Scotland. Now, you're going to be like, what when I say this? The best thing about Scotland is the food and drink. Now, I say this because I think we have the best bars in the world. And I think we have some of the best food in the world. And I know that most people, when they think of Scotland, just, you know, think of deep fried Mars bars and whatever else. (laughs) But honestly, like we've got some of the best food in the world, seafood, restaurants, pop up things. And I think like I've, I've had the joy of watching that grow over the last 10 years in particular, because I think after the 2008 recession, it just like shot up, skyrocketed. But that is one of the best things about Scotland, definitely. Nice one. Do you have like a favourite quote or favourite mantra? Yeah, I've got one that's just so embarrassing and one that's less so, so I'll give you both. The first (laughs) one is the universe tends to like unfold as it should. And that sounds really like yoga-y, but actually it's a quote from Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. (laughs) And then the second one is, yeah, never doubt that a group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, nothing else ever has. And that's by Margaret Mead. Perfect. Perfect. Um, what is your most treasured possession and why? Wow. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I've ever thought about this before. Okay. Well, this is one of them. I don't know if it's the most, but it's the one I can think of right now. I've got to so my great grandmother was alive until I was 16. She had my grandpa at like 19 years old. And she lived in a small town in North Carolina called Warrington, just over the border from Virginia. And she passed away. And I don't know why, but for some reason, she gave me her pearls. And they're a tiny wee string of pearls. They need to be restrung. And um, yeah, that's probably my most treasured possession is my my great-grandmother's pearls that I have in a wee box that I've never worn, but they're there. Oh, that's lovely. That's amazing you've got them. (laughs) yeah I'm really lucky I have them I'm absolutely gutted to be finishing this but I do have to ask you the very last question that I ask everybody on the podcast and that is what is your favorite Scottish word or phrase oh there are too many okay what is my favorite word or phrase I have to say because I find myself saying this a lot maybe not to people's faces but uh, (laughs) I just like to you know I think telling people to get in the sea is one of my favorite phrases get in the sea <laughs> yeah that's my favorite well that is a first on the brown the brave no one has said get in the sea <laughs> honestly thank you again this has been an absolute joy and whatever you go going to do next i know it's just going to be awesome and you know I, I saw recently you'd obviously mentioned YWCA they've also been on the podcast what an amazing organization they are and I'm delighted to hear that you are now their chair oh thank you yeah I'm I'm so pleased it's such a pleasure to be involved with them they are amazing amazing people doing great stuff for young women and all people in Scotland but uh yeah thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute joy Brianna Pigado you are bro brave material for sure oh thank you I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Bra and the Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.